This morning and find Psalm 150. We've spent the last several months looking at the book of Psalms. We have not looked at all 150. We've jumped around a little bit. We started with Psalm 1. Corey started our series off several months back, and one of the things he talked to you about that morning was that to understand the rest of Psalms, you kind of got to start with Psalm 1. We've sung part of Psalm 1 this morning. This morning, I'm going to tell you, to understand all of Psalms, you kind of got to wrap up with Psalm 150. So there's some notes in the outline. If you want to follow along, you can pull those out. Take a Bible, find Psalm 150. If you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the seat or underneath you in the seat. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to make that one that you grabbed from the seat in front of you yours, by all means, we would love for you to have that one. Psalm 150. Psalm 150 is the climax of of the book of Psalms. This is what the entire book is building up to. That does not mean, some of you who haven't been here for all of the other sermons we've preached on the book of Psalms and you haven't studied all the other 149, that does not mean that you have to master 1 through 149 before you come to 150. In fact, in this series, we've jumped around, we've skipped around, we've covered about 30 of 150 Psalms. We have not gone in numerical order. This sermon series has been different than our previous series in the book of Luke, right? In the book of Luke, you start in chapter 1, you plow through all the way to chapter 24, and you follow the story as it goes. The book of Psalms doesn't exactly work that way. Each Psalm really is an individual thought, stands on its own. And along the way, we've talked about some of the connections between some of those Psalms. Hunter and myself preached through the the Trilogy of the Shepherd, three Psalms that really kind of go together. But even though they go together, you can look at each one individually and make sense of it. At the same time, I'm trying to tell you that Psalm 150 is the climax of the book. Or the next point on your notes, here's another way of saying the same thing. To really understand Psalm 50, you kind of need to understand the rest of Psalms. I mean, you can get some truth from Psalm 150. You're here this morning for the first time. That's fantastic. You're going to understand it. It's not complicated. It's, it's not hard to understand or make sense of. You will get it. But to really fully understand what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 150, you kind of have to go through all the highs and the lows of the rest of the book. And we've seen there's some highs and there's some lows. We've talked about the wisdom of God. And the blessed man of Psalm 1 who doesn't walk in this way or he doesn't sit with these people. He he doesn't stand with these people. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. We've talked about the comfort that we find from knowing God is our shepherd in Psalm 23. Even through the valley of the shadow of death he's with us and he protects us. And his rod and his staff are enough to keep his people safe. We've talked about how to confess sin in the lowest moments of your life in Psalm 51 when you're absolutely crushed by the weight of the decisions you've made or the words that you've said or the actions that you've done. We've felt that and we've talked about it in Psalm 51. We've talked about Psalm 67 that says all of the nations are called to worship God, all of the peoples of the earth, not just Israel, not just the United States, not just us in this church, but all of the peoples. We've talked about how to give thanks, Psalm 100. Not just giving thanks for the things he gives us, but giving thanks for who he is. We're going to talk about that again this morning. 
We've talked about how to get down in the dumps and wrestle with spiritual doubt. We talked about Asaph and how he was in the lowest moment of his life and he was questioning God and he was questioning his faith. So we've been there. We've been down in the mud with him and wrestled with some of those questions. We've talked about Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm from the book of Psalms in the New Testament and how it points us to Jesus. We've talked about Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms that's all about the Bible itself and why it's important and why we need it. We've gone through all these highs and lows. Then you're ready to really understand what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 150. Here's a few more thoughts before we read it. Psalm 150 is anonymous. You'll see there's no note up at the top like there are on some other psalms. But Jewish tradition identifies David as the author. In fact, if you were to go today to Jerusalem and you were to visit the site of David's tomb, I have some friends, I've been keeping up with them on Facebook, and they're in Jerusalem right now, and they're posting pictures of all these sites. And I don't know if they're going to go to David's tomb, but if they went to David's tomb, they would see something that looks like this. And on that blue veil or that blue shroud, interesting, of all the psalms they could have stitched into that covering, any of the ones that explicitly say David wrote this psalm, they picked Psalm 150. And I know that doesn't make sense to you unless you're a Hebrew scholar, but I'm telling you, it's there, Psalm 150. And so Jewish tradition is David wrote Psalm 150. We don't know that for certain, but that's the tradition. Here's what we do know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, is that Psalm 150 is a majestic call to worship the Lord. And that's a fitting way to end the book of Psalms, right? This book gives us wisdom about how to worship, why to worship, who to worship, when to worship, where to worship. And all of those questions that we've been talking about all through the book of Psalms are going to come up right here in this short six verses of Psalm 150. So let's read it. You follow along. Words are on the screen or you can look in your Bible. Psalm 150, this is the word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for a book in the Bible that gives us wisdom about how to approach you. And from the beginning of this book to the end, we've seen gospel truths. We've seen reminders about your holiness and reminders about our sin. Pointers to Jesus calls to trust you and to turn from our sin. And we pray this morning we would hear those things. We pray that you would make us wise on this issue of worship and that we would see these very simple answers in this passage, but that we would also receive them, that our hearts would be open to your word, that we would be humble as we sit under the authority of your word. Father, be honored in the preaching and in the hearing and in the response. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning is going to be very simple, very, very, very simple. Maybe the simplest breakdown of any psalm that we've looked at. We're going to look at these six verses and we're going to ask these questions. Who, where, why, how, and then another who question. Simple questions, simple answers. Here we go. 
Who should we worship? And the answer from Psalm 150 is the Lord. But if you look carefully in the text, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And the psalmist is trying to make a point when he says, praise the Lord. So we've talked about this many times in our study through Psalms. And for some of you, this is just basic, simple review. Some of you weren't here as we talked about this. I just want to remind you about some of the most common names for God in the Bible. I'm going to put three of them up on the screen. Sometimes you read in your English Bibles, you come across the word God. That's the Hebrew word Elohim. It's just sort of the general word for a deity. It can be used of Baal at times in the Bible. Baal is described as a quote-unquote God. In some cases, it's actually used of spiritual beings like angels, but when it's used to refer to God, it's just the general reference to deity. Then you sometimes see the word Lord, capital L, everything else, lowercase. That's the Hebrew word Adonai, and it sort of just talks about God being uh, king, God being ruler, God having authority. Again, just sort of a general word that is used to talk about God. And at times, to be honest with you, to talk about other gods. But then there's the word L-O-R-D, and it's all capitalized. You see it throughout the Old Testament. And when you see that, you understand that the authors are telling you the real Hebrew word there is Yahweh. And the Jews were so afraid that they would break the third commandment and that they would use God's name without respect that they didn't even say the name. They would come to the word Yahweh in the text and instead they would say Adonai. They knew how to read. They could read Yahweh. They understood what it meant. But they were afraid that they would use his name without respect so they would say Adonai instead. So the translators sort of meet in the middle and they put it all caps Lord to say they're not using Adonai here but they're talking about Yahweh. And when the psalmist calls us to worship, the psalmist says, praise Yahweh. This is why this is important. All around Israel, there were nations who had pantheons of gods and goddesses. You read about some of them in the Bible. I've already mentioned Baal. Baal was one of those gods that they worshiped. Dagon was one of those gods that you read about in the Old Testament. Asherah was a female deity related to fertility and reproduction. So there's all these gods and goddesses. Here's what's interesting. All these ancient languages, Hebrew and Ugaritic and all these ancient languages, they had similar words. And all the people around Israel used the word Elohim. They all used that word. They all referred to their deities with those words. And some of them even used the word or similar words to Adonai. So you got all these people all around you worshiping all these dozens and hundreds and thousands of gods, and they're talking about Elohim and Adonai, and the psalmist is saying, you got to understand something. Our God is not like all the other gods. He's the one true and living God, Yahweh. The name that he revealed to Moses at Sinai. The great I am. The one who is just because he is. That's the God that he's calling us to worship. And you say, great, I got it. Simple. What's the big deal? You live in a culture where people are happy to talk about God. I know that we sort of get alarmist sometimes and we think atheism is about to overrun the country, but you know still about 90% of the people in the United States say that they believe in God. It's pretty consistent across any poll that you take. Nine out of ten say, yeah, I believe in a God, in God, in some kind of God. 
You just got to have a filter when you live in this country at this time to know that when a politician or a celebrity or a musician starts to talk about God, they may or may not be talking about the God described in this book. They might be using the right word and you sort of might be a, a, a bell in your mind to say, oh, they're a Christian. He's talking about God. He's talking about some kind of God, but he may not be talking about our God. You've got to be careful when you go to a quote-unquote Christian bookstore and you read all these books about all these different people and they're talking about God. You say, well, it seems safe. They sold it to me at Mardell or Lifeway or Family Christian and the guy in there, he's talking about God and he's referencing you know, spiritual things. It seems okay to me. They may be describing or talking about the God of the Bible and they may not. And the psalmist is giving us a very important reminder to say, look, It's great that you believe that there's a spiritual being who made everything and exists up there. I just don't want you to have a vanilla, vague, sort of Oprah version of this force or spiritual something up there. I want you to praise the Lord, Yahweh, the one true and living God. Not all of these other pretenders. And when you live in our society, you know as well as I do, you've got to have that filter. So we worship the Lord. Where should we worship? Easy answer, everywhere. And I think this is poetic description in verse 1 when he says, praise God in his sanctuary. Depending on who you think wrote Psalm 150, you may say the sanctuary refers to the tabernacle if David wrote it or if somebody else wrote it. You may say it refers to the temple, but it's here on the earth, a physical structure where God's people would come to worship. And so we praise him there. And we praise him all the way up in his mighty heavens. And I think this is poetic language saying you praise him here on the earth, you praise him in the heavens, you praise him everywhere in between. Wherever you're at, you praise the Lord. In Jewish culture, in a Jewish mindset, the psalmist is reminding them, you are supposed to go to the the temple to offer sacrifices. You are supposed to go to Jerusalem for Passover. But don't make the mistake of thinking you only worship Yahweh when you're in a specific city or in a specific building. And I think the psalmist would say the exact same thing to you and me this morning. Yes, we gather together here as the body of Christ to worship and to celebrate and to sing and to study and fellowship. All those things are great. But if your experience of worship begins and ends in this room... I'll just be honest with you, what you do in this room really isn't worship at all. If if what you do in this room doesn't overflow and spill over into the other six days of the week or the other hours in Sunday, then whatever you come to do in this room, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's not true worship. Worship is not something we only do when Tyler and the band are on this platform. And if that's your idea of worship, you got to scrub it. you got to be done with it. It is worship when we come here. But if you think that's all that it is, you've missed it completely. We worship him everywhere. Next question. Why do we worship? This is a big one. We worship because of what God does. And we worship because of who God is. Both. And if you have one without the other, then you're missing half of what it means to worship the Lord. Look what David says in verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Those are the things he does. 
Praise him according to his excellent greatness. That's who he is. You know, I think in the United States, we're pretty good because we sort of still have the remnants of a Christian culture and a church culture. And I think we're pretty good in this country about giving thanks to God for his blessings, for the things that he's given us, for the things that we enjoy, for the things that he's done. And so we can gather together on Sunday and we can say, thank you, Lord, for saving your people in the Exodus. That was a great thing. Thank you, Lord, for setting up this kingdom for your people. In my Sunday school class this morning, we talked about Jonah and we say, Lord, thank you how you worked through Jonah, even though he was a rotten prophet and he went to rotten people. Thank you that you were working through that. Thank you, Lord, for what you did. We say, thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. We do that multiple times in a Sunday morning worship service. We're grateful that you sent Jesus to live for us and to die for us. And we even bring it up to the present. We say, Lord, I'm so thankful to live in this country. I prayed that this morning in my Sunday school class. Thank you that we live in this country. There's not another country I want to live in, and we're free to come worship I'm grateful for that. Thank you for this church building. Thank you for the people who come. Thank you for all these things that you've done. I get on social media, I see all kinds of stuff like that. Praising the Lord for my kids. Praising the Lord for my family. Thank you, Lord, for my job. Thank you for all of these things that you have done. They're all great. I don't want you to stop praising God for any of those things. I just want you to stop and reflect that here in Psalm 150, at the end of this book about how you should worship God, the psalmist says, praise God for his mighty deeds and praise him for his excellent greatness. Meaning, when all of those blessings that you're so thankful for disappear and God stops doing all of the things that you're asking him to do, Your obligation to worship doesn't go anywhere. Your heart to praise the Lord and to worship Him doesn't change one single bit. Because you understand, I'm called to worship God for the things that He does, for His great mighty deeds, and for His excellent greatness. Just because He's God, He deserves my worship. I think that's where a lot of us struggle It's easy when life's going well and you're getting these blessings and the Lord is answering your prayers and we celebrate and we hug and we say, this is the greatest. But what about the other side of that where he takes? He's not giving, but he's taking. The psalmist is saying, even in that situation, you have the obligation before the Lord, Yahweh, the one true and living God, to worship him just because he's God. This is a quote from Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors. He said, there's nothing little about God and there's nothing great apart from him. He's just trying to get us to wrap our brains around who God is and how great he is, that there's nothing good really other than him or outside of him. Everything good comes from him and he deserves our worship because of his excellent greatness, even when his deeds aren't what we would want them to be. Even when the blessings we're looking for seem to dry up, the psalmist is saying you worship God because of what he does and you worship him because of who he is. How do we do it? How do we do it? Here's the answer from Psalm 150. We worship God through music. Verse three, 
to 5 talks about trumpets and lutes and harps and tambourines and dancing and strings and pipe and sounding cymbals and, making a distinction, loud clashing cymbals. Brady's going to play a little bit louder when he gets up here after this psalm. It's going to be clashing. Look, that's not an exhaustive list. You understand that? It's not an exclusive list. It's not saying if you have an instrument that doesn't fall into this category, you don't get to use it. What the psalmist is just, just kind of piling up instruments and he's saying, look, whatever you got around that makes a good sound and somebody knows how to play it and it encourages the people and it helps them to worship the Lord, you ought to use it. Use what you have. Worship the Lord. And he even says in their volume doesn't always mean it's disrespectful. Because he says, use the symbols, and then he says, loud symbols, make them loud. You know, in heaven, the book of Revelation describes people worshiping around the throne, and it describes it being loud. Psalm 150 says it's supposed to be loud, it's supposed to be enthusiastic. You say, well, I don't like loud things. And I say, baloney. I saw so many of you guys at the football game Friday night and it was loud and you were yelling and screaming and nobody was sitting there saying, it's too loud. You're loud and you're yelling and you're screaming, you're excited. My family went to a concert the other night in Lubbock. It was loud. And I saw some young people there. We took our girls with us. They were pretty young. They had the little headphones on. And we saw some older people there, older than us. And I didn't see one person with a sour look on their face complaining about it's too loud. Everybody's excited. You're singing along. You're having a good time. We can handle loud. And the psalmist says it's supposed to be loud. Now, if that doesn't make you uncomfortable enough, let me just mention the other sort of awkward thing in those verses. He says, with dancing. Chris Ray's getting excited over there. Everybody else is getting nervous. I've been in Africa with Chris Ray and I've seen him try to dance and I don't want to see him try to do it in this room. But what the psalmist is saying is, you don't have to put on a show for people, right? You don't have to do something that makes you uncomfortable, but you also don't have to just do this the whole time. It's okay to move. It's okay to be part of it. It's okay to be engaged in it. Just read you this list again with the trumpet, with the lute, with the harp, with the tambourine, with dancing, with strings and pipe and sounding cymbals and loud clashing cymbals. How do you do it? You do it with music. Can I tell you just your pastor saying thank you to you for something? I look around the room and I know that we have different musical tastes. That's not lost on me. And I know that we have different experiences of how we grew up and things that are special to us and things that feel nostalgic and feel like home. I understand that. But I'm grateful as your pastor that at least since I've been here, I've never had somebody come to me from this church, from our church, okay, I'm limiting it to this church, and say to me, I can't worship with this kind of instrument. I can't worship with this kind of song. And you say, well, why would we say that? I've had people say that to me for the last 10 years. They just look me in the eyeball and say, I can not, will not, do not have the ability to worship with this instrument or that instrument. And I've heard it from every kind of style, every kind of instrument you could ever imagine. 
I've had people say to me, in effect, this is sort of my paraphrase on it, I can't worship the Lord unless the copyright date on that song is at least 50 years old. That's really what they're saying to me. (laughs) That's amazing. And I'm grateful that since I've been here, nobody said that to me. You guys, maybe you've thought it, but you haven't said it to me. And maybe if you had your choice, we would do things a little bit differently or pick a few different songs or whatever. But I feel like as the body of Christ here in this church, we understand it's not about our preferences. And we're not going to let an instrument or a lack of an instrument or a copyright date on a song control our willingness to worship the one true and living God. So, you know, on Sunday mornings, we kind of do things one way. If you come on Wednesday nights, we do them a different way. And if you say to me, I can't worship one or the other, I say it's not a problem of one or the other, it's a problem of you. And the psalmist says, we worship God through music. We do it. Look, you go all around the world, you look at any culture, any society, everywhere you go, any people that you meet, they have music. Rhythms and instruments and drums and this and that and songs. It's just part of who we are as human beings. God has built that into us. And the psalmist is reminding us that's a good thing. You worship God in that way. Now, one small disclaimer, because I said this earlier. I told you, what happens in this room is not the totality of our worship. And I just want to remind you of that from a passage in Romans. Look what Paul says to the church in Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's talking about worship, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. What is? Presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice, saying to God, I am yours. I don't live for me. I live for you. I'm dying so that Christ can live through me. When you do that, that is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul is saying something really important. Whether you realize it or not, you worship all day, every day. The things that you say and the emotions that you feel and the actions you take ascribe worth to people or things all day long. And the call of God in your life is not to come in this room and sing songs once a week. The call, of life is to pre- the call of God on your life is to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice so that the things you say, the things you feel, the things you do every day throughout the week bring honor and glory and praise to God. So I want you to understand, worship is way more than just singing, right? It's all of your life. But that certainly doesn't mean it's less than singing. And the psalmist says very clearly here that we are to worship God through music. One last question. Who should worship? Answer the question, who should we worship? But who should worship? And the answer is everyone. Everyone who has breath. I want you to understand this is the reason for which you exist. To worship God. This is why you're here. The problem is, according to the Bible, that the sin in your life keeps you from worshiping God the way you ought to do it. 
And I know that a lot of the times we think of sin and I ask you to give an example of sin and maybe you come up with something you said or maybe you come up with something you've done or maybe you're really spiritual and you come up with something you feel. But most basically, if we're talking about sin, we could just say, I haven't ascribed worth to God in the way that I should. I haven't loved him with my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole strength. I've fallen short of that standard. And the Bible says the only way for that problem to be made right is for you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to believe that he came to seek you and to save you and to purchase you and to bring you back into a relationship with the Father. And only when you do that, when you come to the one true living God through his son, Jesus Christ, can you truly worship God and know your purpose. Look, if our purpose as a bunch of individuals is to worship God, if that's why we exist, what do you think our purpose is as a church? To worship God. To present ourselves as living sacrifices to him. To do things and say things and think things that ascribe worth to him. That's why we exist. If you've been to our new member class lately, we talked about our vision statement. About a mm, year and a half ago, we preached through what it is that we believe God has called us to do at this church. And the vision statement of our church says, we believe that God is with us for his glory, for the world, for this city, and for you. You come last on that list, and God comes first, very intentionally. We exist as a church, first and foremost, above and before and behind everything else to worship the Lord. You say, well, what about missions? What about evangelism? Isn't that what we ought to be doing? Isn't, shouldn't that be our purpose and why we exist? Those things are important, and I think if you hang around here long enough, you'll know that we think they're important. But those things aren't ultimate. We do all of those things because we look around our city and we look around our world and we see tons, thousands, millions of people not worshiping the Lord. So these people are not doing what God created them to do. So we do outreach and we do evangelism and we do missions so that we end up with more people worshiping the Lord. And the Bible says that a day is coming the day is coming where mission trips will be over. If you want to go on a mission trip, you better do it now. You want to share the gospel with somebody and be evangelistic, you better do it before you die. Because on the other side of this life, those things aren't going to happen. Do you know what will happen? Worship with music and singing and instruments and even loud clashing cymbals and maybe even a little dancing. That's going to happen. That's your purpose. Did you know that Harvard University was founded in 1636? And it was originally founded as a school to train Puritan pastors. Did you know that? 1636. This is the original motto of Harvard. Truth for Christ and the church. You can go back and you can read their original handbook. The handbook says something to the effect of, Every student at this school should strive to know Jesus Christ but because he's the truth. You can't know truth apart from him. The student handbook even encouraged students to read their Bibles at least twice a day. You can go back and read a publication from the school about seven or so years after it was founded, and this is what they said. We exist, Harvard exists, our purpose, we exist to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity 
dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. What a great purpose. Someday, our pastor is going to lie in the dust, and we're going to need somebody to lead this church who knows what they're talking about. So we're going to start a school, and we're going to train pastors to do what God has called them to do. I don't think you need me to tell you that somewhere along the line, they forgot their purpose. They've drifted from that original mission. And they would look around today and they would say, yeah, but we're doing this and it's a good thing and we're involved in this and this is valuable and we have the biggest endowment of any school. And they could point to a lot of positive signs of life and you and I look at it and say, it's all great. You just forgot your purpose. You forgot why you existed in the first place. My prayer for you as an individual And my prayer for our church is that we don't forget our purpose. And this is it, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we simply ask that you would take this very simple song and press it into our hearts that we would understand these foundational truths about who you made us to be, why we exist as individuals and as a church. Father, we pray that the things that take place in this room would center around worshiping you and celebrating what you've done for us through Christ. And Father, we pray that that worship would spill over into the rest of our lives, the rest of our time, the rest of our weeks, And that we would live as people who desire to bring honor to you, to ascribe worth to you, to make much of you, to point people to you. Father, you are worthy of all of the worship we can offer. And so as we sing together right now, we pray that you would hear us, that you would receive our worship, and that you would empower us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.